All right, so today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together... It is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and the other gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone who ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves... We would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Uh, thank you, Olivia, for reading that. So uh, before we get started, I want to give you just a, it kind of f- seems fitting with this scripture reading we just had to say something about uh, Tatiana, who is uh, here from Russia, and uh, she's been living with the Pringles, and they're going to be moving next week, and we have been trying to find a, a place for her to live, and we had a place all worked out, and it's fallen through, uh, not anything to do with her, just circumstances changed on the other end. And uh, she's, Tatiana is a special person, she's, and she He's great with little kids if there's a situation where that would work, or elder care. And um, yeah, just trying to care for somebody who's part of us here. So, you know, just keep your ears and eyes open and uh, see what happens there. Let us know. so Paul, uh, in this, what was just read for us, I need to, to point out to you that uh, if if we were actually kind of feeling the pulse of his pen at this point, he gets rather intense. In fact, he's kind of ticked off. Uh, the passage we were in last week had to do with women uh, wearing head coverings, which we had to wade through that uh, kind of odd passage. Hopefully uh, it made sense more when I got done than when we started. I, come on, help me out here. But uh, this one is a little more clear, and uh, but there's an intensity here. He wasn't nearly as upset when we talked about that as he is this. There's something going on here in Paul that we have to kind of discover. Um, He uses the phrase, just to give you a hint, in verse 18, he says, in the first place, 
You know, and he says, basically he's saying, you guys, you might be better off just not even gathering together. And then he says, in the first place, and he never gets to the second place. Have you ever been that mad with your children where you say, and then the first thing, you know, and then you, get, you go on a tangent or a rant or whatever you call it, and then you forget the whole list because you're so upset. So some of that is going on. Uh, and it, it has to do with, the, the nature of, of what he's going to be talking about, which is, this is a symbol of right here. By the way, is there a, a better symbol for our world right now than the place where God and people are reconciled, but people and people are reconciled? D- isn't there some healing that needs to happen? And so this table is, is a symbol of that. And uh, we'll see here that Paul is, is that's the, the theme. So you have, you have this symbol of unity, and then you have the divisions that are taking place. And he's just beside himself, because how do you hold these two things together? The juxtaposition of one against the other. And as I was uh, hovering over this text this week, I thought of, in the Old Testament, how Moses, uh, up on the, what's called the Holy Mountain, where he received the Ten Commandments, and the people all said, yes, we will do them. That's called the Old Covenant. People saying, yes, we will be good. You ever said that? That's the Old Covenant. This is the New Covenant. Uh, Yes, we will be good. And uh, a few weeks later, actually 40 days, which is a long time to wait, I I agree, but Moses is up on the mountain with God getting further instructions, and God says to Moses, Moses, you need to go down and check things out. And he goes down there, and they've made a golden calf, which is, I mean, it's purely against the Ten Commandments that, you know, that don't make an idol. And then they're doing something with the sexual uh, orgy, dancing, something that you wouldn't expect on the holy mountain. And Moses just gets so upset. So he throws the Ten Commandments that had been written by God's finger, two tablets onto the ground, and they break. And it's just a mess. But it's the juxtaposition or the, the, the deep irony of one, this going on on the holy mountain, and you people just said that you would do all this stuff, and now you're not. So Paul has some of that same stuff going on. Um, we might get that feeling by looking at this picture here. This was Charleston, June 15th. 2015, where nine African Americans were shot dead, and not only in a church, but in a prayer meeting. A prayer meeting. I mean, there's just something wrong with that picture. And we should get upset when we see that kind of thing. So to lighten it up, um, this is a billboard thing that doesn't make sense when you put these two together, right? Where are you guys going after church today? (laughs) Okay. But here's one for you. Yeah. 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 So, you know, it's it's that sense of uh, uh, in this place, I mean, of all places, uh, and Paul has that thing going on inside him. So communion is where we're headed today. We've had the, the, it's kind of cool, we had the baptism. That was really a wonderful thing. And the other sacrament that we celebrate uh, in the Christian church is, is communion. So I want to set you up for that. The passage that is in the, embedded in the middle of the passage that was read is the one that we and most Christian churches use at communion uh, on the night of the Lord, uh, or the night before he was betrayed. He, you know, and you know, we'll, we'll get there. But... Um, it's about communion, and it's about something going on in Corinth that is very upsetting to Paul. So uh, we'll look at the problem. We find that in verses 17 through 22. 
Uh, we'll use our imaginations a bit to fill in what seems to be going on. And then what Paul gives as their, their solution or their answer. And then we'll talk about us. And then we'll come to the communion table. There you go. So uh, Paul is... Uh, let, me, let me begin by going back a few weeks when we were talking about meals sacrificed to idols and how Paul wrote on that topic, one of the things that we learned there and is we know from outside the Bible is true that there were um, these mystery cults in the first century in the Greco-Roman world where many gods were worshipped and you identified with a god. Maybe it had something to do with your business or, or your whatever. And you would go to that temple of that god and you would eat and you would have fellowship and you would worship that God. Those three things were tied together. And so it's not, it's not that different for the Christian church to be doing that now around the person of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Now you need to know this, that we have it in uh, other writings from the first century, that when the people in the world saw what the Christians were doing, they were uh, accused of being, sometimes at least, accused of being cannibals. Why would that be? Because there's rumors that they are eating the body and the blood of someone. I mean, just think about how weird, if you heard about somebody eating, they're in that room over there, and they're eating somebody's body and blood, just let that kind of rattle around your head, and you'd understand why they might accuse the church of being cannibalistic, okay? Well, uh, this was going on, and then... uh, as, they, as the Christians met, they would also have this meal that they would call a love feast or an agape meal, which is a Greek word for love. But uh, the, the point was that you, you ate and you worshipped and uh, you, you, know, you might sing uh, songs and you have fellowship. And it's just kind of like what we do here, but we've gotten away from the meal part. And... Uh, whether that's good or bad is is uh, it's yeah we may it may be a good thing to bring that back someday some churches try at least but when they were doing that here's the problem they had the meal but imagine that they're meeting they're probably meeting there were no church buildings until 300 years after Christ basically no church buildings. Got to get that straight. Somehow the church grew 10% every decade for 300 years without a building. Figure it out. They met in homes. So this is 55 AD, and they're meeting probably in the home of a wealthy person. And uh, the home might hold 30 to 50 people if, if it was a bigger home. And... Uh, what would happen, it seems, is that the wealthy people would get there early. And they would eat in a special room. Make, like, think in your house. You have a dining room, probably. And then maybe you have a, f- a bigger uh, family room or something like that. Or they, they might have this, uh, there's, a, there's a name for it. I can't remember what it is, but a, a special room like a dining room. And then they would have an atrium, which was bigger. And so the wealthy people would get there early. And they would have uh, food that, you know, I, I think of prime rib or whatever, something on that order. They would eat first, and uh, obviously they were, had some wine with it or something because there's that mentioned in the text as well. So they're eating and drinking, and then the, the working Joes get there about 5.30 or whatever, the blue-collar folks, and they bring their buckets in, their, their lunch buckets, and they eat their rice and beans over here. So you have this division going on that's a social economic strata, stratified 
And Paul is just beside himself over that. That's the problem. So, um, it, yeah, I don't know how that, that strikes you, but that is what Paul says they're doing. It's despising the church. It's a strong, strong word. Despising the church and humiliating those who have nothing in verse 22. So it's, it's a strong, and it's, it's a sense of, of all places. I mean, we could, you maybe understand that happening over somewhere, you know, another, another event, but to have it happen around the communion table, which is the very symbol of unity, there's, there's something wrong. I, want, I hope, if nothing else today, folks, you get this sense that there is only, uh, some have said that the level, uh, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's only one way to come to the communion table, and it's with your hands out. You're a beggar begging for bread. We all are. I don't care how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter what you have accomplished in life or how many initials come after your name. We're all beggars begging for bread and wine, cup, whatever, grape juice we use, just so you know. Um, but it, it's, it's all grace. It's all grace. I grew up in a town in southwest Washington. When I say grew up, uh, I was 11 years old when we moved, but I was born there, and uh, my middle name is named after the town. The, name, the town is Raymond, Washington. Anybody heard of Raymond? It was in, in the day. Hey, do you know that it, it, in Raymond, Washington, at one time on Front Street, or I guess, no, First Street, they had 47 taverns. This is not in my message, uh, but there you go. You, a little trivia. But it was a thriving logging town at one time. And uh, this was, you know, when I, I was kind of maybe on the tail end of that. But the, uh, the point I want to make is that there were blue-collar, most people were blue-collar because they worked for Weyerhaeuser or one of the mills. And then uh, our family, you know, you learn this as you grow up. Even as a, a little kid, you learn that you're, you're not blue-collar, you're something else. And you'll find out that's called white-collar. But we went to the Episcopal Church, which was the white-collar church. And then there were blue-collar churches. They were like the Methodists, and I don't know who those other groups were there, you know. But, but it was stratified. And, and it just socially, economically, as a kid, you figure out stuff that you're from a certain group or class and not from another group or class. And in America, they say the 11 o'clock, 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour wouldn't, wouldn't we just all like to just blow that saying out of the water? 11 o'clock is not. It's the most integrated hour. That's what Paul is saying here. You can't, you can't, you can't have divisions. Not at the communion table. And we all like people who are like us. But God has made us different and diverse and we've got to find out ways to love each other in the midst of all our, our diversity. The, uh, the church in, um, in Philippi, Acts chapter 16, there's, it started, with, as best we can tell, with three people. There was a woman named Lydia who was a wealthy uh, businesswoman. She was there. And there was a jailer who would have been a blue-collar guy. He, tried to, he wanted to kill himself, and Paul put an end to that, and he finds life in Christ. So you got a wealthy businesswoman, a blue-collar jailer, in charge of the prison, and a slave girl. Those are the three people. Isn't that a beautiful picture? You have to say, that is something I would like to be part of. And what I've discovered 
in church over the years is uh, some of my best moments have been with people who are different than I am. And they awaken me to things that I didn't know about. Uh, Just different aspects of life. The problem is, that's not what was going on here. You have the people over here, and you had the people over there. And these people over here were feeling humiliated. Not good. So, um, the answer Paul gives, we'll just explore parts of it here, but he begins by reminding them of who Jesus is on the night when he was betrayed. Jesus took bread gave thanks, broke it, said, this is my body, which is for you. And then goes on to the cup, and we'll do all that later on, a little later on. We'll we'll say those words together today. We're going to say those together. Um, But Jesus is presiding over what was a Passover meal, but he's redefining what a Passover meal is. And in a Passover meal, the the bread was the host who who would, the little child would ask, what does this meal mean? Why is this night different from other nights? And there would be all these answers. And one of the answers would be, this is the bread of our affliction or the affliction of our fathers in Egypt that they ate because that was a place where they were enslaved. And then when they, uh, the, the, the cup gets redefined, and we remember that there is no, at every Passover feast, there's always a Passover lamb. And there's no lamb mentioned in the story that we're, we read about in the Gospels. And so John uh, the Baptist tells us that Jesus is the lamb. He's the one who's going to be sacrificed for us. So we have that, that deep imagery that comes right out of the Passover, of the Jewish Passover, and it's a new covenant. The old covenant was based on who's, who doing what. People like you and I saying, oh, we can do better. We can keep the commandments. I'm not going to do that anymore. How many times have you done something where you said you wouldn't do it anymore? Come on. Fess up. Just a number. You can throw it out there. Whatever. A lot of times. Yeah. Not to say what it is. But that sense of I can't handle this is in all of us. And the old covenant is that which says, oh yes, you can, next time you'll do better. And it's just that inner striving. And what Jesus is saying is, no, this is the new covenant. What you couldn't do, I'm going to do for you. I'm going to do it for you. And it's not just a, it's a, it's a promise, but it's backed up with his own action of dying and then being resurrected, resurrected and then the promise that he will always be with us. And I mean, it's all in there. So uh, we have this new covenant that has been established through an ancient ritual called the Passover that Jesus redefines for us. And then we have this remember word, do this in remembrance of me, both the body or the, or the, the bread and the, and the cup. And the word remember, we often think of remember, the opposite of remember would be what? Forget. Yeah, you, didn't, you didn't forget, you remembered, yes. Recall, we think it means recall. But the opposite of remember in this passage would be more like dismember. So think of it that way. What would it mean to have something dismembered? Your, your arm cut off, your leg cut off, you're going to regraft it in. When you come to this meal, you're going to remember me. You're going to become part of me. I'm going to become part of you again because we get far from Jesus Remember, re-member ourselves to him. So that, that's a significant word. And then we have this thing that Paul does here that takes us beyond where we normally go, and I'm going to go there. 
because it has to do with what he's, everything he's talking about here. But we look at the, if you look at the cross, it's helpful maybe as a symbol, but it's got both vertical and horizontal beams there, right? And what the communion table does is it gets us reoriented vertically with God, and we remember that he loves us, and it's based on his love, not ours, and his commitment to us, not our commitment to him, and just the grace that is poured out to us instead of our activities being poured out to him and trying to impress him. All of that stuff, it's vertically, but what we miss is the horizontal. That this is every bit as much a place where people, it's a social place where we are remembered to each other. We are members of one another. And so in verse... uh, 27, I believe it is. Let me just read that for you. 29. For whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And when Paul is talking about the body of the Lord there, guess what he's talking about? He's not talking about this bread. He's talking about you, the body of Christ. In verse 10, or I'm sorry, yeah, uh, verse 10, 17, if we go back a chapter, he makes that very clear, that Paul uses this language both vertically to mean us and God and horizontally us to each other. Verse 10, 17, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. One loaf, one body, you are a loaf. You have a bunch of loafers out there, right? Yeah. And we all partake of one loaf. We are one body, one loaf. So Paul uses the imagery both for the physical body of Christ as well as for the body of Christ. And how can the body be divided? It's a social thing. And so uh, what Paul would say is if you have something against somebody else, go to that person and make things right. Here's Here's a way of saying this is the most basic, blatant way I can say it, and it'll, it may challenge you in your thinking. You cannot be right with God when you are wrong with another person, particularly a, a brother or sister in Christ. It just doesn't work. You cannot be right with God and wrong with another brother or sister. So you go to that person and make things right. That's what Paul is getting at here. And the t- people in the, in the upper room uh, that had the prime rib need to get down here and eat with the people and share their meat with the people who have just the rice and beans who are being humiliated. Get the divisions out. And then Paul says that this is why some of you, this is a hard one, so we're going to have to uh, make sure I don't say the wrong thing on this one, but th- verse 30, this is why some of you Uh, are weak or sick, and some of you have died. Because they have, this this is what Paul is saying, uh, is that because you are practicing these things that are dividing the body, it has had a bad effect on you. Not only are you hurting these people or hurting these people, you're also hurting yourselves, which is what sin does to us ultimately. It hurts ourselves. And some of them have literally, they become weak physically, uh, apparently, and some of them have become sick, and some of them have died. Now, that's a, that's a, you have to be really, really careful with that one. Um, and Paul has the right to say that stuff. Uh, he had some maybe uh, discernment that he got in that whole thing about why people were sick and, and weak and dying. Uh, I would be personally very, very careful before I would ever say that about anybody because we all get sick. In fact, Paul, we know that he was sick. He had a, some kind of thorn in the flesh thing. That was part of his struggles in life. So we have to be very careful when we say, you're sick because 
you're treating somebody poorly. You know, that's the real reason you're sick. Well, no, it may just be a virus that's going around, right? Or, or that kind of thing. We live in a fallen world. So that aside, I want to just share that I have seen this. I have, and here's the two categories that I have seen sickness, physical sickness come out of uh, the internal life. And this is what we would call, in the medical profession, I believe it's called psychosomatic illness. But it's just that, it's, it's the obvious statement that what is going on inside of you affects your, your body. And people in medicine, you know this is true. But Paul is taking it maybe a, a you know, step further. But where I have seen this is in two categories. One is anxiety and in panic attacks and that sort of thing. That's pretty easy to uh, identify, where just the internal is, is flowing out into the external. But the other place that I've seen it is in the area of forgiveness or guilt or unforgiveness and that whole, that whole thing there. So uh, I, I'm thinking of a particular story of, uh, of a woman. She was actually a doctor's wife, and she, her body was just, like you may see, becoming more and more um, just skin and bones, skeletal, whatever the word is. And her friend who was um, uh, in her sister, uh, I mean a sister in Christ, came and we talked about that. What are we going to do? How can we help her? How can we pray for her? We didn't know what was wrong with her. The doctors... I couldn't figure it out, really, and yet there was something inside of her, and I always knew there was something inside of her. I mean, I just knew that. I didn't know what it was, but I knew there was something in there that she didn't want to talk about. She eventually went to a counselor, and she told the counselor, and I knew the counselor. I, uh, we set this up, and she said, I had a one-night affair with somebody five years ago, and I have lived with that guilt for five years, and it is eating me alive. She got it out. She was prayed for with some sisters around her in that way, and you could just watch her body glow and grow into health and wholeness. Beautiful thing. And the cool part is she eventually told her husband, and her husband forgave her. Her her husband was not a Christian, but he forgave her, and they restored their marriage. Beautiful story. At any rate, this connection between the, this, uh, what they were doing, which was a social, I used this phrase a while ago, socially transmitted disease. Really, that's what sin, it, it, sin is always, uh, has a social aspect to it. And it was making people unhealthy, not just the people who are being abused, but the people themselves who are doing it. All right. Now, what about us? Paul uses this phrase, examine yourself. Don't eat it in an unworthy manner, this table. We're gonna, I want to just focus on us coming to the table now, so we're getting close to that. Uh, before you come to the table, examine yourself. You don't want to eat this in an unworthy manner. And the King James Version of the Bible uh, says don't eat it unworthily. And that word unworthily particularly has caused people to go in the wrong direction. So I just want to make sure that we're clear on this one because if you get this wrong, you're missing the whole, the whole point of the table. Who's the table for? Who's it for? It's for unworthy people. So make, you, you got to get that straight. It's only for unworthy people. Anybody who's, who's uh, got their life totally together, you're, you get a pass on this. It's not for you. Uh, and, and, you know, if, if Billy Graham were here or if Mother Teresa were here, they would be first in line. Get that straight. First in line. Give me the whole cup kind of the line, you know. Run to the table. 
That's what saints are. Saints are people who run to the table because they know they're not worthy. And yet you have these people. I don't know where it comes from, but there's this impulse in us that thinks, I'm not worthy, therefore I can't go to the table. It's the one place we should go, but we, whatever. That's called religious behavior. Don't go there. Just come as a beggar for bread. There will never be a time when God loves you more than he does right now. That's another way to say it. It ain't going to happen. He's already uh, shown infinite love. It won't get any bigger, especially based on what you do or don't do. So there's that. And then I want to use your uh, imagination, if I could, for a sec. This is helpful to me. When we meet in the gym once a month, we say together the Apostles' Creed. And in that creed is this line, the communion of saints. You remember that one? The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, life everlasting. Of all the lines in the Apostles' Creed, and there, there's a lot in that creed, but that one particularly is, is worth, it, it's not obvious what that means. Um, and it doesn't, it's not limited to communion as at the communion table, but we're going to use it that way right now. I want you to think of the communion of saints as being every Christian who has ever been there between, you know, 30 AD, or whenever Christ was died and resurrected, and, and today, every Christian, and the, the table is that big, and you're coming to the communion of saints, and you're going to have communion with people today. You're going to have communion with Lydia, and with the jailer, the blue-collar guy, and the slave girl. And you're going to have, you're going to have with, there, were, there were millions of slaves that came to Christ in those first 300 years uh, of the, uh, the Roman, uh, out of the Roman Empire. Slaves were everywhere. And middle-class people came. And in the Middle Ages, you think of all those people, the, maybe the, the serfs and the merchants and... Um, you know, the, the kings and the high and the low, they're all going to be here with you at the communion table. If you ever saw Sally Fields in Places of the Heart, at the end of that movie, there's a little scene there that kind of captures this thought. But you're going you're gonna to have communion today with people who seem way better than you and way worse than you. But it, they're all there. There's nobody, there's no privileged place. And you're going to have some American presidents there and you're going to have some refugees there and some immigrants there and everything in between. The ground is level at the foot of the cross and the ground is level at the communion table. We are, we, we are there's one Lord, there is one table, there is one grace that is extended to all. I hope your hearts are prepared to receive. Now I'd like to lead us in a prayer. Uh, but before we do that, I think I'll go to the scripture that if you could all read with me those words that we uh, typically say at communion, and now you know the surrounding context of them, together. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, so let's gather our... This is our prayer of examining ourselves. Let's do that together right now. Our our Lord, we give you uh, permission to um, examine us. And with the psalmist, we say, Search our hearts, O Lord, and see if there be any hurtful way in me. Is there someone, Lord, that I have offended or said a harsh word to or left a deed undone, something I, I should have done or something I should not have done? Someone I need to go to and make things right with and ask forgiveness or grant forgiveness to? Because it does seem, Lord, as we listen to your word, that it would be wrong to come to this table without first doing that. And if there's any prejudice in me against uh, anybody, really, Lord, flush that out by your blood. Flush that out, we pray. And then, Lord, the gratitude that wells up in us as we come with the communion of saints of other people, Lord, who seem better and worse and all the rest, but really one group of people who call you Lord. And you've done this grace thing with millions of others throughout the ages, and you have given us a new covenant based on your decision, your will, not ours. And we are thankful for that. You have graced us. So we come to this table now, Lord, knowing all of that, praying all of that, pouring our hearts out to you. In Jesus' name, amen.